Well, we turn to God's Word this morning. Join me in John chapter 17. John chapter 17, where we are coming to one of the most precious and the most profound passages you will read in all of the Scriptures. John 17 is where Jesus prays, and he offers his high priestly prayer, not only on behalf of himself, but his people, John chapter 17, and we are going to be looking for the next month or so at verses 1 through 26. And this is a profound passage because here is Christ, who is truly God, truly man, and he is submitting himself to his Father's redemptive designs and purposes, purposes that necessitate a dreadful cross. He's coming to the Father in submission. It's profound because we are given a glimpse into the inter-Trinitarian relationship between eternal Father and eternal Son, a glimpse has never seen before. This is the longest and most detailed prayer by Jesus recorded in the Bible. And it is profound because the incarnate Son, understand, the incarnate Son needs to pray this prayer. He needs to pray this prayer. Why? Because of the incarnation. He took upon himself true humanity. And what he's about to face is the strongest temptation to bypass the cross up to this point. That temptation is just moments away. He needs the strength of the Spirit. He needs to once again submit himself to his Father's will. One commentator wrote this, prayer is offered at this point as Jesus approaches the cross because Jesus' commitment to his work of atonement is not automatic. There's a struggle. There will always be faithfulness. Just think of the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the nature of the incarnation. The giving up of himself to death is a new and specific act of obedience on Jesus' part. He must come afresh before the Father and deliberately present himself on the altar of sacrifice in a further crucial act of self-abandonment to the Father's purpose. Repeated prayers of consecration are necessary to any life, even Christ, to any life in the will of God. Jesus prayed because he needed to pray. And yet this prayer is also precious. Precious because it is here that Jesus will seal every promise he has given his apostles and us in chapters 13 through 16, sealing those promises with this petition to his father. Precious because Christ is consecrating himself to the cross, to death, to wrath for us. It's a prayer that fulfills John 13, 1. He's loving us to the greatest degree possible. And it is precious because he is not only thinking of himself and what is in store for him, but amazingly, he's also thinking of the apostles 
and their test of faith that's coming. In fact, we'll see he's thinking of us, temptations we will face in our world. Jesus' prayer is precious because it transcends time. He's not only praying for his people's faith to be sustained, but he's literally praying us into heaven, even as he prepares to experience hell on his cross. It's profound and precious. Notice the structure here. There's three main sections to this prayer. The first section is in verses one through five, where Jesus prays for himself. Notice verse one. Father, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. It's a prayer for himself. The second section is in verses six through 19, where Jesus prays specifically for his apostles. We see that in verse six, the men whom you gave me out of the world, referring to the apostles. And he prays for their doctrine. He prays for their perseverance. He prays for their unity and their joy, knowing what's coming. And then the third section is in verses 20 through 26, where Jesus prays for us, for us believers through the centuries. Look at verse 20. He turns now to pray for those who also believe in me through there, through the apostles' witness. That's us. So we can also add the word personal, personal to describe this prayer. Jesus has us in mind. He's bringing our names, let that sink in, bringing our names before his father as he heads for his cross. Prayer is profound, it's precious, it's personal. And we will take our time to look at this verse by verse. I want to start by reading the entirety of the prayer this morning. Just to read it all in one setting, begin to take all of it in. Let's do that together, start in verse one. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, The hour has come, glorify your son that the son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work which you gave, which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask 
on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world. And yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, And these have known that you sent me and I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. It's Jesus's prayer for himself, for his apostles and for us. Can understand why commentators have called this chapter the holy of holies of John's gospel. You can understand why one commentator wrote this. No saint can comprehend the full meaning of this great prayer, right? How could we? We approach it, therefore, with the deepest reverence, for we are on holy ground, the holy ground of the Son approaching his Father's throne like only the eternal Son can do. 
And yet amazingly, the holy ground, amazingly, this prayer is spoken so that, key, so that Jesus' apostles can hear it. It's not a private prayer. He speaks it so his apostles can hear it. Why? Because they need to hear what the Son prays for them. They need this assurance. And then for us, this prayer is inspired by the Spirit, Spirit allowing John to record it for us. Why? Because we too need to hear what the Son prays for us. We who are in this world. It's a prayer of assurance. It's a prayer of hope. It's a prayer of joy. Let's set the stage, start in verse one. Notice, first of all, the Son's humble submission the son's humble submission. Before Jesus comes to his father in intercession, he first approaches his father with the right heart. He comes to the father in humble submission. Verse one. Jesus spoke these things, we are told, referring to all that Jesus has said in chapters 13 through 16. Perhaps the greatest sermon ever preached, chapters 13 through 16. Chapters that include the grandest promises ever spoken. Chapter 14, Jesus promised that he would return to receive his people to himself. Promised an eternal heavenly home being secured for us. He promised that he would send his spirit to indwell us and seal us. He promised that when we speak the gospel, hearts will be changed through the work of the Spirit. He promised us access to the Father's throne. Look at chapter 16, verse 33. It's a sermon that ends with this final promise. Take courage, be bold. Why? I have overcome the world. I will be victorious. I will overcome the God of this world. I will have victory over sin and Satan and death. So all predictions of victory, predictions that turn then into prayerful submission as, continue verse one, Jesus lifting up his eyes to heaven. It's the customary posture of prayer. Symbolic of directing one's attention, submitting one's will to God. You see the submission in verse one where Jesus begins his prayer by saying, Father, Father. Matthew 6, Jesus taught his apostles to pray, Our Father. But here Jesus simply says, Father. This is Trinitarian intimacy. Jesus prays like no one ever prayed up to this point. He's drawing on his eternal sonship. This is a confession of deity. The son of God coming to the father with whom he shares the same nature. Yet he's a distinct person within the Trinity. But this is a confession of submission to his father's redemptive plan and will. Think of John 5, where Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. The Son submits to the Father. 
The son follows the father's direction. His will is the father's will. So Jesus says, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's the prayer here. The son submitting to the father's plan and will. Submission carries through the entire prayer. Verse five, father, the son submitting. Verse 21, father. Verse 24, father, I desire that they also who you have given me be with me where I am. I'm submitting to your will. That my will is your will. This is the heart of true prayer. And this right here, this is the privilege we too, we too have been given as God's children united to his son through faith. This is our privilege. We saw that back in chapter 16, verse 23, where Jesus says, in that day, After I die, resurrect, the Spirit comes, I ascend. In that day, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, you'll be united to me. Romans 8.15 says we can come and cry out, Abba, Father. We too, because of our union with Christ, can come in full submission and faith. Because like Christ, we know our Father's will is always right. Our Father's will is always right. His ways are always good. He is always loving to his people. And he will pour out the same love for us that he has for his son. But now put all of that in the context here. All of this love and this goodness, the Father always doing what is right is in the context of the father answering Jesus' prayer here with the pain of the cross, the betrayal that Jesus will experience. God always does what is right, even if that means pain and betrayal as it will for Jesus. Jesus knows what his father's will is for him. This is no surprise. This is why Jesus says in verse one, the hour, the hour of redemption, the hour of death, the hour of divine wrath being poured out on me, the hour that has been fixed by my sovereign father in eternity past, the hour that has been announced by God himself in Genesis 3, when the serpent would bruise the heel of the Messiah, the hour that has been pictured in the sacrifices offered in the tabernacle and the temple, when every unblemished lamb was slaughtered for sin, that hour, that picture, the hour that had been predicted by the prophets when the Messiah would be smitten of God, Isaiah 53, smitten of God and afflicted, pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The hour when God himself would be pierced, when God would be pierced. That's Zechariah 12. The hour when the righteous one would be forsaken by God. That's Psalm 22. It's that awful hour when the sin of others would be credited to the Holy One's account. That hour is the greatest test of Jesus' faithfulness. And Jesus says, 
in verse one, that hour has come. It's finally arrived. In John two, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. John seven, my time is not yet here. My time has not yet fully come. He knows it's coming, but it's not yet. John 7, no man laid his hands on him because his hour had not yet come. This is a sovereign hour. John 8, no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. But now, verse 1, the hour has come. Everything changes. There's a sense of finality to Jesus' words here. This is why Jesus turns to his father in prayer. It's because when chapter 18 opens, the powers of darkness will be released upon him like never before. The hour has come. When chapter 19 begins, Jesus will be engulfed not by his father's love, but his father's wrath. The hour has come. So understand what Jesus is doing as verse one opens. He is applying Psalm 23 to himself here. He's applying Psalm 23 because he is right now preparing to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right? That's coming. That's chapters 18 and 19. So Jesus turns his troubled soul We saw it in chapter 13. His his heart is stirred. His soul is troubled. See it again in the Garden of Gethsemane. But he turns his troubled soul to his loving father. He turns his troubled soul to his caring shepherd. He confesses here, the Lord is my shepherd. And he does that because he knows that it is only through prayer and his submission to the Father here that he needs not fear any evil. I will fear no evil. Evil's coming. The ruler of evil is coming. It's only through prayer that he will submit himself to the Father's design, believing that goodness and loving kindness will follow him even through the cross. Goodness and loving kindness will follow him all the days of his life, even these final few hours. He's resting on his father's loving kindness to be welcomed back into glory. He's resting on his father's goodness that he will experience a resurrection from the dead. And thus he comes to the father in prayer, believing that he will indeed dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Christ is applying Psalm 23 to himself as he walks through the valley of the shadow of death. This is the heart of prayer. The heart of prayer is casting ourselves upon the shepherd of our souls, confessing him to be good, to be trustworthy, and believing his promises to the point of obedience, trusting his goodness, that even when shadow's death descends, 
we can in faith submit to his ways. This is the heart of prayer, the submission of the Son. Father, the hour has come, but I trust you. I trust you. Leads into the Son's selfless intercession. The Son's selfless intercession as Jesus first prays for himself. Again, this is necessitated by the incarnation. He prays for himself and he offers here five prayers for himself, five requests. There's one overarching request that's in verse one. We'll look at that this morning. But then under that, there's four other requests that fall within that main request. And each request is a prayer for Jesus to remain faithful to accomplish his redemptive mission. Requests that span the spectrum from his faithfulness to endure his cross to even him ruling over the entire world at the end of the age. Cause me, Father, to remain faithful to fulfill your mission, my mission of redemption. Let's look at the first overarching request. Again, we'll spend the remainder of our time here this morning. Request number one, it's the overarching. Request number one, Christ prays that the Father would be glorified through the Son's sacrifice. Christ prays that the Father would be glorified through his sacrifice. And if submission is the heart of Christ's prayer, then divine glory is the goal of Christ's prayer. Notice the prayer at the end of verse one. Glorify your son. It's a prayer. Glorify your son. But notice this request does not stay in isolation. Christ is no glory monger. Just give me glory. I need glory. Christ prays to be glorified. He prays to be honored by the Father so that, finish verse one, so that the Son may glorify you. It's mutual glory. Christ receiving glory from the Father is tied to him giving glory to the Father. Christ prays for the Father to honor him so that he in turn will honor the Father. It's mutual glory. That's the overarching request here. Glorify me so that I glorify you. But what does this mean? What is Jesus actually praying for? What glory, what honor is Jesus requesting? Well, we are told back in chapter 12, when Jesus uses similar language, when he says this, the hour has come, same language, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified, same language, Here's the question, how will the Son of Man be glorified? Here's the answer, by becoming a grain of wheat that falls into the earth and dies. That's ironic. That's the glory Jesus prays for. He's praying for the honor, he's praying for the honor to die. The honor to hang on a shameful cross and die in the place of sinners. That's the prayer. 
honor me by placing me on that cross. Christ is praying to be sustained by his father as he readies himself to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He's praying for a continued faithfulness to fulfill his father's redemptive design, even though that means pain. He is praying that he would continue to trust his father's promises. Think of 1 Peter 2. He's praying that he would entrust himself without faltering, that he would entrust himself to him who judges righteously. He's praying in the words of Philippians 2 that he would remain obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The request here, glorify your son, is Jesus asking the father to honor him by doing to him what was promised to be done to the Messiah in the Old Testament. Can't get much more profound than this. How selfless. Honor me by chasing me for the sin of others, Isaiah 53. Glorify me by smiting me. Exalt me by crushing me. Put on display my exalted reputation by forsaking me when sin is credited to my account. All Old Testament predictions. Honor me by placing me on that cross and enable me through all of it to remain faithful to you until the end. That's Jesus' prayer. Let's ask another question. How in the world is this glory? How in the world is this glory? Because in the first century, the cross was painful, disgraceful. It's a cross of shame, not glory, not honor. So how does sending Christ to the cross glorify him? How does pouring out divine wrath upon Jesus exalt him? Here's the answer. The shame of the cross glorifies Jesus by showing that he is the suffering servant prophesied throughout the Old Testament. It glorifies him by showing that he is the suffering servant. The cross honors Jesus by showing that he is the God-man who alone can pay the infinite price for sin committed against the infinitely holy God. Only he can pay that price. Only he can exhaust God's wrath on behalf of others. Glorifies his person. He's the God-man who alone can do that. He's the only one who can represent man by exhausting God's wrath. The only one who can represent man. The only one who can be our substitute. This is something that only the God-man can do. And Jesus says, give to me the glory, give to me the honor that only comes through that cross. 
How selfless is his prayer? How loving. We see Christ receive honor for the sacrifice in Revelation 5. Listen to the angels. Because of the cross, the angels say, worthy are you. Great is your reputation. You're worthy of supernatural honor, worthy of praise. Why? Here's why. For you were slain. And through that sacrifice you purchased for God, you did what only the God-man could do. You purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It's praise that continues through verse 12. Worthy is the lamb. Why? Because he's slain. It says irony, he's slain, but he's exalted. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. cross is where Christ's glory is most and best seen. So Jesus prays, honor me, Father. Glorify me, Father, by putting me on that cross of shame so that I will do what only the God-man can do, glorify your Son. And yet, that is not where Jesus' request ends. Christ's prayer for glory is not the main request to the Son here. There's a greater purpose. And finishing verse one, glorify your Son. Here's the purpose, that the Son may glorify you. Christ asks to be placed on the cross so that through his sacrifice, the Father's reputation, the Father's honor would be put on display and exalted and put on display as never before. This is amazing. I contrast this in my mind with Moses' request. When you think of a request to show me your glory or be glorified, I think of Moses. When he asks God to show him his glory, what does God do? He hides Moses in a rock and he passes by with blazing light. That's not what will happen on the cross. The father will answer Jesus's prayer for his father's glory by passing over him in darkness and in judgment. The father will hide his face from his son in abandonment. That's the glory here. So again, we need to ask the question, delve down into this, how did Christ glorify, how did Christ honor his father while he hung on the cross? How does God's judgment on his son display the father's glorious reputation? It seems so counterintuitive. Again, here's the answer. Christ magnified his father's glory when he hung on the cross. He magnified his father's glory because it was there that Jesus displayed the full spectrum of God's attributes to the greatest degree ever. He showcased them on the cross. 
When Christ died on his cross, he revealed the extent of God's holiness. Yes, we read in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. But on the cross, we see God's holiness, the full extent of it. Even if sin is credited to his perfect and his eternal son, the father must punish it. Cross show that Habakkuk one is true, that God's eyes are too pure to approve evil, that he cannot look on wickedness with favor. Amazingly, even if that means turning his face from his own son. Display of holiness. The cross revealed the depth of God's righteous anger. We see the extent that he hates sin. We see the necessary fury that must be poured out on sin. The cross revealed the infiniteness of God's justice. For only the God-man could exhaust the Father's wrath. The cross revealed the unerring faithfulness of God. Cross shows that every prophecy in the Old Testament about the cross has been predicted to the letter. It's the glory of faithfulness. The cross revealed the compassionate mercy of God. That the Father in love, think about it, the Father in love would send the Son of His love to endure holy punishment in our place infinite mercy. The cross revealed the astounding grace of God, his undeserved favor of crediting our sin to Christ, crediting our sin to Christ and in return, amazingly crediting Christ's righteousness to us. This is the glory of his saving grace in 2 Corinthians 5. He, God the Father, made him his sinless son who knew no sin, holy. He knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That's the great exchange. Our sin becomes Christ. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him so that Christ's righteousness can be ours. Our sin is his, his righteousness is ours. His robes for mine, we've sang it last, last month. It's the glory of grace. No wonder Ephesians 1 says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. cross revealed the great forgiveness of God when Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them. The cross revealed the power of God over all evil, the power to destroy Satan, to cast out the ruler of the world, to void every vindictive plan he has against God and God's people. Hebrews 2, on the cross, Satan is rendered powerless. Colossians 2. On the cross, we see the power to disarm the rulers and authorities and make a public display of them, triumphing over them. 
It's the power God has over all evil. The cross displayed the sovereignty of God, what man means for evil, God always means for good. The cross reveals the transcendence of God since no other religion can even fathom a God who dies for sinful creatures. You see the wisdom of God. Christ fulfills all of those shadows in the Old Testament. Christ is the lamb unblemished and spotless. See the patience of God. God never turned a blind eye to sin, never. You know, in his patience, he waited for his son's payment for sin. Like never before, like never do, before do we see the glory of God as Jesus hangs on his cross. Though vile, the cross was glorious. It's a uniting of attributes that you might not think could be united. It's a picture of Psalm 85 where loving kindness and truth meet each other. Where righteousness and peace kiss each other. That's the cross. And notice here, this glory, this honor, the reputation of the Father, that is what is driving Jesus to his cross. Back to verse one, glorify your son. Again, the purpose statement, that the son may glorify you. It is true. Christ goes to the cross because he loves sinners. That is true. But understand even more, even more than his love for sinners, Christ went to the cross because he loves his father. He loves his father's glory. It's this desire to glorify the father that is driving him. The very first question in the Westminster Catechism is this. First question, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? The answer is this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we're created. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, that is exactly what we see as John 17 opens. The chief end of the God-man was to glorify his father. That's what's driving him. And to glorify his father, even if that means hanging on a cruel cross. It's the first request that's offered. It's the overarching request. Glorify me so that I glorify you. So as Jesus begins this prayer in submission to his father's redemptive work, Christ is praying that he would magnify his father's glory in the most remarkable of ways. He's praying that he would be credited with and then punished for sin on our behalf. Do to me what you promised to do to the Messiah in the Old Testament. And as we work our way through this chapter, the applications will be endless. The applications will be endless. But the very first application must be this. The very first application, before we apply how Jesus prays, 
Before we apply even Jesus' prayers for us, the very first application must be this, hallelujah. What a faithful and sinless and loving and submissive and God-glorifying Savior we have in Christ. All stemming from that first request, Father, the hour has come. It is time. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Father, I trust that we will bring praise to you through your Son through this passage. And that we would be humbled by the love Christ has for you and his submission to your redemptive will. We would rise up and say, hallelujah, what a savior. He'd raise us up in praise. That we'd see the desire of Christ to glorify you and that would be our desire May we glorify our Savior. May we glorify our Father through the Spirit who indwells us. Lord, I pray that you would change us on the inside. Give us a greater love for your glory than we have. We need it. That you would be praised through it. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.